today we're going to look at 1 Samuel chapter 1 uh, through to chapter 2 verse 10. We've already read the bit in chapter 2, so let's hear from 1 Samuel chapter 1. Uh, there was a certain man of Ramathaim Zophim of the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Elkanah, the son of Jehoram, son of Elihu, son of Tohu, son of Zuf, an Ephrathite. He had two wives. The name of the one was Hannah, and the name of the other, Penina. And Penina had children, but Hannah had no children. Now this man used to go up year by year from his city to worship and to sacrifice to the Lord of hosts at Shiloh, where the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were priests of the Lord. On the day when Elkanah sacrificed, he would give portions to Penina his wife and to all her sons and daughters. But to Hannah he gave a double portion because he loved her, though the Lord had closed her womb. And her rival used to provoke her grievously to irritate her because the Lord had closed her womb. So it went on year by year. As often as she went up to the house of the Lord, she used to provoke her. Therefore Hannah wept and would not eat. And Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Hannah, why do you weep? And why do you not eat? And why is your heart sad? Am I not more to you than ten sons? After they had eaten and drunk in Shiloh, Hannah rose. Now Eli the priest was sitting on the seat beside the doorpost of the temple of the Lord. She was deeply distressed and prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly. And she vowed a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your servant and remember me and not forget your servant, but will give your servant a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life and no razor shall touch his head. As she continued praying before the Lord, Eli observed her mouth. Hannah was speaking in her heart, only her lips moved and her voice was not heard. Therefore, Eli took her to be a drunken woman. And Eli said to her, how long will you go on being drunk? Put your wine away from you. But Hannah answered, no, my Lord, I am a woman troubled in spirit. I have drunk neither wine nor strong drink, but I have been pouring out my soul before the Lord. Do not regard your servant as a worthless woman, for all along I have been speaking out of my great anxiety and vexation. Then Eli answered, Go in peace, and the God of Israel grant your petition that you have made him. And she said, Let your servant find favour in your eyes. Then the woman went her way and ate, and her face was no longer sad. They rose early in the morning and worshipped before the Lord. Then they went back to their house at Ramah, and Elkanah knew Hannah his wife, and the Lord remembered her. And in due time Hannah conceived and bore a son. And she called his name Samuel, for she said, I have asked for him from the Lord. The man Elkanah and all his house went up to offer the, to the Lord the yearly sacrifice and to pay his vow. But Hannah did not go up, for she said to her husband, As soon as the child is weaned, I will bring him, so that he may appear in the presence of the Lord and dwell there forever. Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Do what seems best to you. Wait until you have weaned him. Only may the Lord establish his word. <clears throat> so the woman remained and nursed her son until she weaned him. And when she had weaned him, she took him up with her, along with a three-year-old bull, an ephah of flour and a skin of wine, and she brought him to the house of the Lord at Shiloh. And the child was young. <clears throat> 
Then they slaughtered the bull and they brought the child to Eli. And she said, Oh, my Lord, as long as, as you live, my Lord, I am the woman who was standing here in your presence praying to the Lord. For this child I prayed, and the Lord has granted me my petition that I made to him. Therefore I have lent him to the Lord. As long as he lives, he is lent to the Lord. And he worshipped the Lord there. Well, let's pray. We'll ask God to um, enable us to understand uh, this part of his word. Heavenly Father, we, <clears throat> we need your spirit to enlighten our minds to your word. Uh, because, Father, our hearts, uh, our minds are darkened uh, without your spirit working in us. And so we pray, Father, that he would uh, open our eyes to see uh, the glory of who you are. We pray that we would also see the, the wonder of what it means to, be, to, to belong to you as your child. And we pray, Lord, that you would also lead us to see the glory of your Son, who is presented here as the hope, <clears throat> the hope of all the world. And we ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen. Do you know, ever since um, February, uh, if you've looked at the news at all, you will see every single day that there are story after story of uh, the crisis that's going on in uh, Ukraine. Uh, so many images of uh, people fleeing uh, the latest uh, bit of conflict. And uh, sometimes when I see uh, footage of people fleeing like that, I, I wonder to myself what it must be like for certain individuals uh, among those people fleeing. Like, for example, you know, surely there's a person there who needs dialysis um, on a regular basis. How are they coping? Or surely there's an expecting mum who's coming to full term. I mean, imagine what she must be going through. Uh, or even someone who you know, might have broken their ankle a couple of weeks ago. I mean, just imagine how frustrating it would be. Like, just having a national crisis is bad enough. But on top of that, when you've got a personal crisis, you know, imagine how hard uh, that must be. And in some ways, that's actually how the book of 1 Samuel begins. Because 1 Samuel begins at a time when Israel was facing a national crisis. And uh, there's, because 1 Samuel, it comes right on the back of the book of Judges. If you've read the book of Judges lately, you'll know what I'm talking about. Those last five chapters in the book of Judges, uh, they paint a pretty grim picture of the nation. You know, they are an absolute mess. And uh, we're told four times in that last section of Judges that in those days there was no king in Israel. And twice it adds, everyone did what was right in his own eyes. So that was one crisis they were facing. Another crisis was the spiritual leadership of this time. Uh, you would have noticed in this passage that uh, Eli was mentioned and his sons, Hophni and Phinehas. We're going to look at that next week because they come up uh, in the passage after this one. But they were a real bunch of scumbags, to put it bluntly. And uh, they were the spiritual leaders. So the nation was in huge trouble. And then there was an external crisis where you have the Philistine armies regaining power and they were gathering their forces. They will eventually attack Israel again. And so both internally and externally, you've got a nation in crisis, a nation at breaking point. Really, at the end of Judges, you're left asking the question, what is going to become of this nation? 
How will God, what will, what will God do for his people? And where's this king that judges keep saying that somehow they need? 1 Samuel answers all of those questions. But it starts not by talking about the national crisis, instead it narrows in on one particular person who was experiencing a crisis of their own. And uh, this is a crisis, a personal crisis, that the whole nation was completely oblivious to. No one else knew about this except this one person. And yet it turns out that this is the starting point of everything else being resolved. It's an incredible story. So let's follow the story. Uh, the first part of this story uh, I'm going to call God's Mysterious Ways. And that's in verses 1 to 8, God's Mysterious Ways. It begins by uh, introducing us to a, a bloke named uh, Elkanah. And he was from a place that hardly anyone had really heard about, uh, Ramathim, uh, Zophim, or Rama for short. It was really a nowhere place. It's kind of like um, I come from a place called um, Bort. And whenever I tell someone I come from Bort, 99.9% of the times, the response goes exactly like this, Bort, where's that? And that, it's such a common response uh, that the town have actually adopted that as its slogan. And they produce a sticker. Uh, that we were given um, at Christmas time, which we're debating whether we put it on our car or not. Uh, we still haven't resolved that debate. But um, so here, here's a bloke who comes from a, a nowhere place. Okay, so no one really knows them. And, but it's not about Alcana. This is a story about his wife, Hannah. And we quickly learn that, that Hannah is a woman who has quietly endured a whole lot of anguish and pain over many years. And we are invited into her world of sorrow and anguish uh, because Hannah couldn't have children. And that alone would be hard enough. But to make it worse, her husband took on a second wife named Penina. And according to verse 4, Penina was able to have lots of children, lots of sons and daughters. Now, just in case you're wondering, sometimes back then in the Old Testament, uh, sometimes blokes took on uh, more than one wife. Now, that was not God's design for marriage, which is made very clear in that every time the um, Bible describes someone like that, it really highlights all of the um, problems that caused, as uh, we see in this passage today. Uh, but it does show us that, that sometimes God's people are driven more by pragmatism and by the cultural norms around them rather than the word of God. That's what happened with Elkanah. He, his wife couldn't have children, so what did he do? Pragmatism. He just took on something that will work. And uh, in this case, he took on Penina. And uh, the reason was because Hannah couldn't have children. And that caused a whole heap of problems, obviously. Hannah was the victim of all those problems because not only did she have to endure watching Penina have all of these children, and you know, she's watching there in the background, but not only that, but Penina made sure that Hannah felt every bit of pain of that experience. And she would pick her moments very carefully 
this penina to, to make sure that Hannah experienced maximum pain for what she was seeing. And so every year the family would go up to Shiloh for an annual feast. And so this was meant to be a time of great celebration. Uh, it's kind of like you know Christmas dinner. Everyone looks forward to that. Get together and eat a whole lot of uh, lovely food. And yet that's the time that Penina would pick to make sure that she was especially cruel to Hannah. Uh, verse 6, it says that a rival used to provoke her grievously to irritate her. And it happened year after year. Hannah would get so upset on these occasions that she couldn't eat. Just so upset. Now, for all these faults, you would have noticed in the reading, Elkanah tried to comfort Hannah. Uh, he, he, uh, the point of verse 5 you know, mentions he gave a double portion because he loved her. Uh, the point of that, it's trying to show us that Elkanah, even though he had taken on another wife who was producing all of these children, he didn't let that shape the way he thought of Hannah. He still loved her. He still valued her. He, he, he didn't blame her for her barrenness. Uh, she still remained his number one. And yet, no matter how much he tried to comfort Hannah, all of his words just fell flat. It was just too painful for Hannah. So why was Hannah unable to have children? <clears throat> what, what's, the, what's the medical cause of Hannah's um, condition? Well, it doesn't say. But what it does say is what the ultimate cause of Hannah's condition is. Did you notice in verse 5? The Lord had closed her womb. And in case we missed that, verse 6 says it again. The Lord had closed her womb. And this is what I mean by God's mysterious ways, because this is affirming, as the Bible does from beginning to end, that God is sovereign over absolutely everything, <clears throat> including our suffering. Uh, God is sovereign. That means that he is in complete control. And before we jump to personal application there, we need to just sort of stop a minute and go, okay, what, what is actually going on here? Because here, here we see a woman in the Bible who is barren, and instantly we should start thinking, this sounds familiar. Because... This is not the first time we, we read about a, a barren woman. Uh, when God revealed his plan to Abraham, that he was going to bless all the nations through <clears throat> Abraham's offspring, where was Abraham's offspring at that point? He didn't have any. <clears throat> and his wife was too old to have children. And yet God, because he's sovereign, that means he's all-powerful, he enabled Sarah to have children in her old age. When Isaac married Rebecca, uh, Rebecca was barren. Isaac prayed for Rebecca and she was able to have children. She had Jacob and Esau. Uh, when Jacob married Rachel, turns out Rachel was barren. Rachel prayed, the Lord enabled her to have children. And she had Joseph, who eventually saved the people from famine. Uh, the same thing happens with Samson's mum. Samson was the, the judge before Samuel was the final judge. Again, born to a woman who was previously barren. And so what we see, hang on, there's a theme going on in the Bible. 
There's a theme that God works his plan out, his plan to save the world, which is where it's all heading. He works it out through, often through barren women. Now, I doubt that would have been much comfort to Hannah at the time because, after all, I'm sure there were other barren women in Israel at the time who were, were not able to have children. But as readers of Hannah's story, we, we actually know this is where it's going. The reason why Hannah is, we, we, the reason why we're learning about Hannah is because she was part of this story. She was part of the plan, God's unfolding plan to save the world. And we're seeing here that the way God so often made his plan go forward was by bringing something out of nothing. So often God does it like that. Do you know when I was uh, in theological college training to be a minister, I had an Old Testament lecturer and uh, we would work our way through the Old Testament. And his favourite saying was, God loves to make things hard for himself. And I remember him saying it so many times because that's exactly what you find in the Bible. Over and over again, you see, when does God work? It's when his people are without strength, without resources, without any hope in anything that they can do themselves. When, when they are completely helpless, nowhere else to turn, that's when God steps in and does something that essentially changes the course of the world. You know, who, who in, in all of Israel, in this time of national crisis, who would have thought that the answer was already in the works in this unknown town with this lady silently suffering, no one really knows about anything about it, who would have guessed that's where the solution was coming? Who could have imagined that in Hannah's tears, in all of her suffering, that God was on the move, that that's the next step in him saving the world. This is God's mysterious ways. And this is very helpful for us to, to meditate on because when you start to realise this is the way God works, this is his characteristic. And when you realise that this is the way God often works, then that starts to shape the way that you expect to encounter him in your own life. When will you likely encounter God? When you're on the other side of helplessness. When you're at the point in your life where you, you literally have no, nowhere else to turn. And when you find yourself turning to the Lord, saying, you are my only hope. When that happens, then you know God is at work in your life. See, that's God's mysterious ways. <clears throat> Now, the second part that we see in uh, verses 9 to uh, 28, we'll take that big section. Uh, here we see God's steadfast goodness. God's steadfast goodness. And this, this comes out in the way Hannah deals with her grief. So on one particular occasion, uh, Elkanah had tried to console her. It didn't work. And so from verse 9... This is the first time in the story where we see Hannah actually do something. So far, she's just been, uh, she's been teased, she's been suffering, but now she does something. Now she acts. She stands up and we watch as she, she escapes that setting that, that, um, where they were having the meal. 
She goes away all alone to somewhere outside the temple. Actually, it was the tabernacle at this point. Uh, Eli, um, he was sitting there. She wasn't too far from him. And verse 10 says about Hannah that she was deeply distressed and prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly. And uh, so you can imagine the, the scene. You know, she, you couldn't hear her voice. She was just, her lips were moving. She was crying so much. And uh, Eli looks across and he instantly thinks, you know, here's a drunken woman, which doesn't say much for Eli. But it does say a lot for Hannah. It says a lot about Hannah. A lot that we can actually learn from. Because Hannah clearly believed in the sovereignty of God. She clearly believed that God is in control of everything, which meant that she accepted the fact that God was the one who closed her womb. Now, how do we know that, that she knows that? It's because of what she prays. When she prays, how does she address God? She says, O oh, Lord of hosts. That's a title of God's sovereignty. That's to acknowledge that God is sovereign over everything. And so Hannah accepts that God is the one who closed her womb. But what does she do with that knowledge? What do we do with the knowledge that God is sovereign over our suffering? Does that lead to fatalism? You know, do we just accept the fact, well, this is my lot, squash all emotions and move on? Is that how you deal with it? It's not how Hannah dealt with it. Uh, does it lead to resentment? Do we say to ourselves, well, if that's the way God is going to treat me, I don't want to have anything to do with him. Again, it's not the way Hannah dealt with it. How did Hannah deal with her knowledge that God is sovereign? It led her to pray. She brought all of her emotions, all of her distress, all of her bitterness, and she poured it out to the Lord. Perhaps she reasoned to herself, well, if God is the one who closed my womb, then he's certainly the one who can open it again. And she would be right to think that way. But on top of that, she turned to God in prayer not only because he is sovereign, not only because he has the power to change her situation, but she turned to him because she knew that he cared for her. How do I know that? Again, it's because of what she prayed. Notice her prayer in verse 11. She vowed a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your servant and remember me and not forget your servant, but will give your, to your servant a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life, and no razor shall touch his head. Now, usually when we look at this prayer, we focus on the vow, you know, the nature of the vow, what, what all of that meant. But just before we get to that, I want you to stop and look. What does Hannah say before she gets to the request and before she gets to the vow? Notice how she says, look on the affliction of your servant and remember. That's a very significant phrase because in the earlier books of the Bible, that phrase, look on the affliction of your servant and remember, that comes up time and time and again to describe the way God responded when his people were in slavery in Egypt, when they were crying out. That's the phrase it uses. God looked on their affliction and he remembered. And so Hannah is saying, that's the God you are. I know that because that's how you've revealed yourself in your word. 
That's why I'm relying on you. Notice how Hannah doesn't base her faith in God on her feelings or on wishes. She bases her faith in God on how God has revealed himself in his word. That's her basis for hope. That's how she knew that God cared for her and would hear her cry. And that's why Hannah turns to God. She turns to him because she knows he's sovereign and because she knows he is good. She knows he cares for her. And because of that, she knows that she can trust him. And have a look at the difference that made. See, she has a little um, chat with Eli. It kind of sets him straight. You know, I'm not a drunken woman. I'm pouring my heart out to the Lord. Don't you realize what prayer looks like? Uh, maybe Eli doesn't. But, uh, but then in verse 18, look at the end of verse 18. Well, verse 18. Eli said to Hannah, let your servant find... Sorry, Hannah said to Eli, let your servant find favor in your eyes. Then the woman went her way and ate, and her face was no longer sad. So we're at the point in the story where Hannah doesn't know the outcome. She doesn't know if she's going to have a child or not. But what she does know is that she's in safe hands. <clears throat> she does know that God is in control and that he is good and that he cares for her. And so she knows that she can rest in him, whatever the outcome is. See, she's found God's steadfast goodness, and for her that was enough. And there is a lot we can learn from that. Because you know, maybe some of you here today are in a, uh, facing a situation of deep distress, something that's caused you to weep bitterly. Uh, here we learn how to deal with that. Here we learn from Hannah how to pray through that, how to channel all of the, the feelings, all the frustration, all the angst, how to take that to the Lord in prayer. And here we learn from Hannah how to rest, how to rest in God's care, even when we don't know the outcome. Here we learn we can, we can rest in his goodness. Uh, you know that song, we sometimes sing it, The Goodness of Jesus? It's such a helpful song because it has those words, satisfied, he is all that I need. Rest here in his wondrous peace. See, that's the answer. That's where you'll find peace, in the goodness of God. But then there's something else here that is related to that related to resting in God's goodness and it comes after not only after the prayer but also after the birth of Samuel see verse 19 does say that um, Hannah uh, well the Lord remembered her and then verse 20 in due time Hannah conceived and bore a son she called his name Samuel for she said I asked uh, him for, for, for him from the Lord so that, that's a wonderful answer to prayer like it's essentially a miracle and, but it's what Hannah does next that is, is also a miracle. Because Hannah, remember, she made this vow. She said to the Lord, if you will give me a son, I will give him back to you, that he will serve you all the days of his life. And so God has now provided her a son. And 
what does she do? Does she say to herself, oh, this is awkward. <laughs> I made that vow, but you know, surely God will understand that I really wanted this child and so I can't, I can't give him up now. Uh, God will understand. I was, I was uh, distressed. I, um, you know, I made it in haste. Notice how there's none of that. She doesn't try to back out of the vow. Instead, it says that she, she waited until um, Samuel was weaned, which makes um, good sense. Uh, apparently, that was around age three in those days. And, and then she, she went through with the vow. She took Samuel to the tabernacle and handed him over to serve there all his life. Now, he was a three-year-old. And I know some, for some parents, you know when you take the, the child to um, kindergarten on their first day and you get really emotional because you're going to have to give up your child for an afternoon? Imagine what Hannah must have gone through. This is not like daycare. Uh, this is handing me over. He, he's there all the time. And this is before the days of video calls. There was no such thing as a nice little car trip to go and say g'day to Samuel. I don't know how far it was away, but it would have been a massive ordeal to see him. We know she did see him once a year when they went up to the feast, probably other times as well. We just don't know. But the point is, that would have been difficult for her. So how could she go through with it? How could Hannah keep this vow when it is so significant? And the answer is the very same way that she found comfort in her barrenness, the goodness of God. See, God really was sufficient for her. Uh, for Hannah, God's sovereignty and God's goodness were not just abstract theological concepts for her. They actually meant something to her. They shaped the way that she dealt with her experiences. She was able to process what was happening in her life and this commitment to keeping the vow all in light of that. It really did shape her. And so when it came to actually giving up the child that she so desperately wanted, she was able to do that because she was resting in God's goodness. So that's God's steadfast goodness. You know, we've looked at his mysterious ways, but we've seen that he's also good. We can trust in him. Uh, but then we get to chapter 2. Uh, this is the passage Matt read for us. And uh, here we see Hannah prays again. This time it's not a prayer of sorrow, but a prayer of praise. It actually becomes a song. And here we can see that Hannah, went, the, whole, the whole thing she went through, she wasn't just looking back to the way God dealt with his people in the past and finding strength there, but she was also looking forward to what God was going to do. And that also brought her strength uh, to do uh, the things that she's done. So chapter 2, I, I think we could call um, verses 1 to 10 God's glorious promise, because that's what it's all about. Uh, this, this time, Hannah, she interprets her experience for us. See, she shows us the significance of what happened. This is a, a monumental step in God's plan to save the world and uh, let's have a look at it. So verse 1, it says, Hannah prayed and said, My heart exalts in the Lord, my horn is exalted in the Lord. 
My mouth derides my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. And uh, that sounds uh, sort of personal. <laughs> but then when you read the rest of the song, I mean the song uh, it, it, it's not the sort of song you would sing to express, um, you know, receiving something, you know, some great experience. This is much bigger than Hannah. Uh, in fact, Hannah launches into a prayer that seems to incorporate not just the nation of Israel, but the whole world. And the theme of her prayer is reversal. Okay? God's reversing everything in the world. So you, you see in verses 3 and 4, he talks, uh, she talks about uh, God re reversing um, pride and humility, uh, bringing down the proud, raising up the humble. She talks in verse 5 about the hungry being filled, whereas those full becoming hungry. She talks about those who are barren having children and those who are fertile having none. Then in verse 7 to 8, the rich becoming poor and the poor becoming rich. And so you get this idea that it's a theme of reversal. And it makes sense that Hannah's talking about this because she's just experienced a great reversal. She was barren, now she has a child. <clears throat> but this is actually a prophecy. Hannah was inspired by the Spirit to speak this prophecy. And what, what she's saying, she's saying that what happened to her was actually a little picture of what was happening in the entire universe. That God was not just doing something for Israel, but doing something that will turn the whole world upside down, that will reverse all of the misery and all of the pain and even all of the arrogance and evil in the whole world. And how is God going to do that? How is God going to turn everything in the world upside down? Well, the answer is right down there at the end of verse 10 where it says he will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. Now you've got to remember, Israel were in a crisis. Okay? They had a need for a king. And here's Hannah talking about a king coming. And Hannah can see that, that her child that she has had will have a significant part to play in how that will come about. She doesn't know all the details, but you know, it turns out Samuel becomes the forerunner to the king. But like, this is a prophecy, so like all Old Testament prophecies, there's always something much bigger in the background. Something much greater. And that, what that is, is obviously pointed to in this word anointed. The very last word she says, anointed. That's the Old Testament word for Messiah. Now, Judges, the book of Judges ended by saying, in those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. That was the problem with Israel, but it's actually the problem with the whole world. The reason the world is in the mess that it is in is because people have rejected God as king. That's why the world is full of pain and misery and arrogance and evil. And the solution to all of that where is it going to come from? Is it going to come from somewhere in this world? Can we just find a leader who will fix everything? You know, we've got an election coming up. If we just elect the right leader, then we'll fix all of the problems in Australia. And then what about the rest of the world? Who are we going to get to put everything right again? It's not going to come from a king like the nations. 
That's something that Israel are going to learn the hard way with Saul. How is this world going to be put right again? It's going to be the king. The king after God's own heart. The anointed, the Messiah. That's where it's going to come from. And so Hannah, in her prayer, she was given an insight into that bigger plan. What God is doing for the whole world. And no one would have guessed at the time that God was unfolding that plan in the pain and misery of this, this unknown woman. Just like centuries later, no one would have guessed that God was bringing this plan to fulfilment in another unknown woman, this time in Nazareth. And you know how I said God likes to make things hard for himself. He often works through barren women to bring that plan to pass. Well, when it came to the birth of the Messiah, he went one better. And he brought about a child through the birth, a virgin birth. Hannah celebrated her pregnancy in a song about God reversing the world. What did Mary do when she heard she was pregnant? We read it at the start. She sang a song about reversal. She actually took all of Hannah's words. If Hannah had a copyright on her song, Mary would be in big trouble because it's the same thing. And why? Because Mary was saying all that Hannah spoke about is now being fulfilled with the coming of the king, the true king. And the true king, Jesus, he's the saviour who will literally turn the world upside down. When he comes again, all sorrow will be turned into eternal joy. And so we see in 1 Samuel, this is the God who rules the world. This is the God who does his greatest work in weakness and suffering. This is the God who proves his power not in the powerful, but in the lowly, the unknown, in the weak, the ones who have nothing. And do you see, this is the greatest proof that you can trust him. This is the greatest proof that he can be trusted because he's the God who really can bring nothing, uh, some, sorry, something out of nothing. And he has done that supremely in the death and resurrection of his son. Who would have guessed, looking at the Messiah dying on the cross, that that is where God was saving the world? And he has. That proves that he is sovereign. It proves that he is good. It proves that you can trust him no matter what the outcome will be. Rest here in his wondrous peace.